From New York City to Los Angeles, Powered Up Talk Radio is giving women of all ages permission to live the life they've always dreamed of. Each week, Powered Up Talk Radio explores innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be. Right here, right now. Here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. everybody, this is Sandra Beck and I'm here today with one of my favorite people, Dr. Mark Borg, and he has written a book with his buddies called Making Your Crazy Work For You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. Holy bananas, Batman. Talk about trauma and isolation. Mm. This book couldn't come at a better time because, you know, when we talk about making your crazy work for you, what better way to do it than during a global pandemic? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. Again, we were just saying, like, this is one of my favorite interviews. I love it. Totally off script. And it's it's wonderful. Really nice to see you. <laughs> yeah. So how crazy. Like, let's define crazy first. Like, before we, you know, okay. before we get into it, how do you define crazy? Well, Grant, Danny, and I define crazy. In a, in a, you know, we... we uh, we really thought very hard and seriously about putting it in quotes, you know, because we yeah. we would the last thing we would ever want to do is to offend anybody. Uh, we take the word very, very seriously. We don't throw it around. When I talk to my I'm a clinical uh, psychologist, psychoanalyst. And whenever I use this word with my my clients, I'm always like, look, crazy tends to be a word kind of a, uh, you know, uh, like a, a like a a general term that we use for things that we don't understand, you know, things that right. threaten us and scare us and, and, and hurt us. But in our book, Grant and Danny and I define craziness as a, as a, as a kind of isolation that we inadvertently use to protect ourselves from allowing other people to take care of us. And it com- connects with this fear relationship idea that Grant and Danny and I have been exploring together since 2010. You know, this is the third book in our series. And your relationship is this kind of reverse caretaking that a child develops at a very young age when, a, when the child believes, feels, thinks even earlier than that, because it sometimes starts very, very, very early in life, that the parent can't take care of her or him. Right. So this reverse caretaking becomes a way that the child not only comes to care for him or herself, but also starts to try to care for the parent, i.e. the environment, in order to get the parent to at least minimally provide for him or her. So what happens in the long, long, long run is when caretaking reverse reverses, then the child goes into the world with a sense that no one's going to be able to take care of me. Right. And goes out there like a fire hose, like constantly, constantly, almost perpetrating care onto other people. Now, what happens is the consequence of that really is that the child learns that they can trust, ironically, that no one will be able to take care of them. Right. So what they do is they caretake in a way that actually inadvertently protects them from allowing other people to care for them. So it becomes one directional. And I and again, when you're going like this, when all of the care is going outward, no care can get in. And that for a human being is isolation. And that kind of isolation creates a terrible loneliness that one might feel 
if they're in this kind of caretaking, one directional caretaking relationship that we call your relationship, you can feel this isolation. You can feel this loneliness, even when you're sleeping in bed with your partner for 40, 50, now 62. I say 62 because I've got a couple right now who I've been seeing for a while during the pandemic who've been married for 62 years. So this is hardcore, right? Hardcore. Well, but it also my... explains yeah. why why somebody can say in the you know because I saw this in my own family, one of my family members who has lots of kids, a longtime husband, she's got dogs, she's got friends and everything. She is the loneliest person on the planet. Yes, yes, and, and and that person, right? Your cousin, your family member, is like. What the heck? How can I be lonely? I love my dog. I love my husband. I love my kids. I love my cousins. I love my whatever, you know, my people from my church and my 12 step me. I love them, but I'm not letting the love that they have in. I'm not taking in the care that other people have to offer. And that's strange, right? Because most of the people that I initially start to talk to about this are, are trying to tell me like, Mark, I'm generous. Mark, I'm giving. Mark, I'm a philanthropist. Mark, I, you know, I donate my time all weekend at the shelter and, and or it could be the animal shelter. And, I, and I'm like, yes, and that's wonderful. But as long as all the care you're giving is going outward, you're going to be lonely. You have to let the people that you're caring for care for you too. I had Absolutely. an incredible session today with a with a beautiful, wonderful woman who was telling, like I'm seeing her in couples therapy, but the, but the husband couldn't show up and they just run into some really good fortune. And she's like, I don't know if I've earned this. I don't know if I deserve this. I don't know if I would ever. And I'm like, look, I go, I don't know about earn or deserve or any of that. But I do know you've been the adult in the room in this family for a long time and you've got to let your guard down and let other people contribute to you as well or you're going to suffer. Right, right. And that explains why sometimes people will say, oh, that person has poor self-esteem. That person doesn't really like themselves. And I, I would kind of look and go, you know, with the same family member that will not be named, but yeah, yeah. she... She's confident. She's good. She's got all these things, but she yeah. was conditioned in the family mm. environment to be this way. Because yeah. I think there's a difference between someone going, well, I'm really not worthy and deserving of love, or maybe they were just trained as a very young child to take care of, especially a dysfunctional, you know, or a parent that couldn't function without that kid's help. And that kid grew up learning going, okay, so this is what I do in relationships. I give and give and give and give and give, and I never take, because if I take, but that really doesn't have much to do with self-esteem. It's kind of no. on the other the other side of it. In fact, I think you're right because confidence, self-esteem, all of these kinds of things, yes, they can be these things that you're pushing outward. But when it really comes to human relations, all of these things are dynamic. All of these things are reciprocal. All of these things are, are conducted and, and, and reflected as an appraisal in interpersonal relationship. Yes. So again, what I find for the giver, 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 the compulsive giver, the helpaholic, the human antidepressant, whatever you want to call this person, what I find, right, what I find is that the people on the receiving end of it they're, they're, it's, a, it's crazy, you know, using our term, but they don't really feel all that well cared for in the long run, right? right? Because the expectation from the compulsive caregiver is incredibly high. The, the, and the expectation starts out as, oh, I just want you to really be grateful. I want you to thank me. I want you to grovel. I want you to, you know, really, really acknowledge how generous and benevolent and, and incredibly philanthropic I am. And, and that's, 
people usually at least start out going like, thank you. Like, thank you, heartfelt. Thank you. Yeah, I'll send you, uh, you know, all kinds of emojis with like this, you know, we do. Um, But the problem is for the compulsive care taker, there is no thank you that's big enough. There is no gratitude that's big enough because they're trying to fill a hole, right? right? They're trying to fill a hole. And what they've come to trust is that no one, is trustworthy. No one has good stuff to offer. No one has anything nearly as wonderful, benevolent, caring as what they have. And they don't. And the thing that I try to, to, to communicate over and over and over again, we do this in the book, is like, let's have compassion for this person, though. Like, we're never, you know, you, you and I um, interviewed for another, like, very provocative book that I wrote. And the right. title made it seem like, oh, my gosh, we're coming after these people. They were the, they're the jerks of the world. They're the narcissists, whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. We have to care for these people. We have to love these people. We have to help these people accept themselves so that they can drop their guard, so that they can drop their incredible defense and let the world love them. Right. You know, I'm not coming after these people with a finger on you better stop that compulsive care. T-. I'm not. I'm like, no, 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 no. Please let us love you. Let us love you because it's so lonely. And the right. loneliness, the crazy, um, if it's used, right, the, you know, crazy work for you means crazy becomes a call for help. Crazy becomes yes. a, a blinking red signal that allows us, those of us who love that person, to try again, to let, to, to, to help that person let our love in. Right. 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 Well, and it's funny, you know, when you were talking about the, you know, like kind of that compulsive giver um, and like, I never want to ask that person to do anything because I always (laughs) feel so bad, even though I know she'll do it. Like I feel bad because the receipt of that giving doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel genuine. Like there's a difference between the spirit of giving and it's like, oh, like I really want to help you. But usually that's because there's reciprocity. You know, like today my mom asked me to pick up her kid and I I couldn't because of the radio and I'm like trying to help her get somebody else. And I'm like, you always take care of my kid when I need a ride, when I'm working. Like there's that kind of yin and yang give and take. And I know like there's this one mom in my community i know she's free i know she has nothing better to do but i don't want to ask her for help because i'll never hear the end of it oh remember that time when i picked up your kid do you remember and, and you know oh yes i always pick up sandra's kid and and you're like for crying out loud like drop it let it go but it's because it's about them like yeah. you said about filling that hole but yeah. i will tell you it's not a hole. It's a bowl with a hole. That no matter <laughs> how much you pour into that, yeah. it's not like a little, because, you know, like a hole. I know because I fell in my mom's grave, you know, like the, just the, the one day they put the urn in, like up to my yeah, knees. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you hit bottom. So in a hole, there's a bottom. Well, but yeah. I'm just going to say these people don't have a hole with all due respect, Dr. Mark. It's a bowl mm-hmm. with a little yeah. hole in it. Because it constantly drains out. And that's right. I can't because they're not really it. getting anything, right? They're not taking anything and they're not being nursed. They're not being yes. my grandmother, that's so funny. My grandmother, my beloved, beloved grandmother, used to call it a hollow leg, right? She yes. said, Oh, your Uncle Clifford has a hollow leg, meaning he just ate and ate and ate and ate. But in, in our reference in, in point, what we mean is everything that we try to give goes right through. And you know, the thing that I think is most important in crazy making for this compulsive caretaker is that. It, what gets missed and what is crucial is that if I don't take in anything that you have to offer me, 
Like you welcome me on your show. You're so hospitable. You're so lovely. You, you always like make me feel so welcome. If I was like not taking that in, if I didn't walk out of here this evening, here's my office, you know, I'm going to go home and feed my kids, you know, here in New York city. If, if I didn't take that with me, I'm sending a message to you. Yes. The message I'm sending is Sandra, you got nothing good to give. Right. Son, you know, right. You, you, you're you, whatever you have to give me. No, thanks. Right. right. We don't realize that when we're compulsively caretaking as a defense against letting other people offer us things, what we're really defending ourselves against is letting other people matter. Right. And have significance or that's right. Or that's value. Right. And to give back. And like, that's that reciprocity. Like yep. that feels so good. Like when I see oh, yeah. you and you smile, then I smile. <laughs> and we're like, Oh my God, we get to be on the radio again. And, you know, yeah. and talk back and forth. And there's a yeah. sharing when there's no sharing. And, and it's true of any dynamic. Like if I have a yeah. host on who want, who will go nowhere with me, you know, or a mm -hmm. guest that comes on and it's all about them and it's one sided. Hey those relationships they're just doomed because yeah. nobody wants to be around someone where you don't create and you know this sounds so hokey but like little heartstrings from my heart to yours yeah and no, no, no. It's not back hokey. and forth you right. know <laughs> right if you don't because again if you don't have that you have the recipe for loneliness and i think the crucial part is this thing that we're saying the heartstrings the little bubble of hearts and all of that wonderful stuff is really like you matter to me like yes. you are valuable to me. You are contributing. I am taking it in. You know, I mean, it just, we, we started this whole project in 2010 with kind of inspired by a paper written by a psychoanalyst named Harold Searles. And he wrote this um, paper called the patient as therapist to his analyst. And Searles basically said, we are all natural born uh, therapists. Like the, and, and from a child, from an infant, like the, the, the infant needs to believe like as the growing child, that the things that the infant does have a an effect on the parent. The parent is like joyful because the kid is eating and sleeping and, and, and being cared for and having a blast and going to the circus and all those wonderful, right? That the parent takes in that the child is joyful and that is the child giving to the parent. Yeah. And Searles made this incredible point because he worked with very, very disturbed people that, that at one point in psychoanalysis were considered untreatable. And he, so he worked with these very, very intense, um, a lot of times psychotic patients. And he believed that the reason why they weren't able to respond to treatment is because therapists of the time were not communicating that these clients were giving to them by showing up in therapy, by doing the hard work, by, you know, by making payment. What, what, there's so many ways that a patient, a therapist is, is, is fed by the work she or he does with the client. Sure. We've got to let the clients know that, you know, like, thank you. I mean, again, it's, a, it's more oftentimes it's more subtle than like, you know, like jumping for joy at the end of each session, like, thank you for being my client, you know, like, yay, you know, but, but there is, but what we do need to communicate that we are also being cared for. Right, right. There's not that wall, you know, like yeah, my yeah. therapist, I've had her on and off for, I don't know, 20 years. She helped me co-parent my kids and deal mm. with all sorts of court stuff. And, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I love her, love her, love her. And, yeah. but she would say things to me, you know, you did really good work this week, or, yeah. you know yeah. what, I saw this thing on, you know, cause she's retired now, but every once in a while I'll, she'll say, oh, I saw this thing on social media and I'm really proud of you. Cause I know this used to be hard for you. Look at oh. how far you've come oh. now. Those are like, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> yeah. 
And I will fire back something like, I couldn't have done it without you. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. or like when my kids get certain things, like my son got a full scholarship to um, UC Santa Barbara, full ride. Oh, congratulations. Five years. Woohoo. Wow, that's awesome. But I know he did hard work. I did hard work. But I know that she as a family therapist had a big part to do with it. So when I got the little cards made for UCSB, I sent her one and I said, this is as much as your celebration as our family, because you helped keep us together. Like you matter. You are important. The work you did to my family mattered. And isn't that what we all want? Yeah. Like, you know what? You know, Dr. Mark, you can't fix my problems. I have to fix my problems, but you can point me in the right direction and you can pick me up when I fall down. You can tell me, hey, there's other solutions when I make a mistake. Like there is all sorts of things that can be done, not only between friendships, but between clients and their patients. Yeah. That has nothing to do with the alphabet soup that follows your name. That's right. And that exactly. And that, and that again is, me as that person somehow communicating to you that whatever the alphabet soup is the most important thing about our relationship is the work that we're doing and how we are able to care for each other even things as practical as you know i wouldn't be a shrink if i didn't have a client walking in the door or these days of course it's all mostly virtual so (laughs) you know popping up on the screen right but i wouldn't be a client and i wouldn't have be able to pay my office rent if you didn't pay me and i wouldn't be able to you know whatever like on down the list of all the things that we're actually sharing with each other both explicitly and implicitly all the time if we're open to it of course we know now we're this is the other side of it right you and i are talking about what grant and danny and i call relationship sanity because relationship sanity as we define it is simply a balance of giving and taking yes like and you know and that goes with everything for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction like we can look at physics you know we can look at at you know any number of the sciences that say you know if i take water and i you know pour it out of the bucket and i pour it back in like it's going to occupy the same space or roughly the same space Mm -hmm. if i don't spill it like there's so many things that teach us that there has to be reciprocity there has to be you know like a plant dies and all of its elements go back into the soil and it's recycled and brought in and you know then you look at the seasons and we come back to winter fall spring you know we keep going everything is an exchange in the universe so why wouldn't a relationship be well because we know that not all parents are able to parent right and again we're we're, we take a very compassionate look we are not shaking fingers at parents and blaming and castigating and criticizing we're saying you know there are there are parents who are depressed there are parents who are mentally ill there is addiction and there is just there are parents who didn't learn to parent themselves from their parents right so so we're not about pointing fingers and, and, and criticizing and blaming, but we are about the butt stops here, right? right? That, hey, right? So you did this incredibly benevolent, caring, loving thing. When your parent wasn't able to parent you, you reversed the roles and parented your parent so your parent could at least su- provide the minimal amount of care for you to survive. Right. Now, when that's extreme, of course, when it is, for instance, you know, about addiction or when it is about actual abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, then yes, that, that's a whole other thing. Right. And that degree of trusting that the environment will hurt you, trusting that the environment will betray you, trusting that other people are out to get you, that creates a very, very profound and compulsive kind of way of interacting with the world that for sure operates to 
to, to, to protect you from ever dropping your guard and letting yourself be hurt again. So, you know, that's, that's our model. I and mean, our model does go back to the earliest forms of care and how we are affected by that and how we learn these routines and how we take those routines with us into all of our relationships. Some of it is very, very mild, right? But it, it, in a funny way, it almost doesn't matter how mild it is, right? Because yeah. if I'm sleeping next to you for the last 10 years and I'm not letting the love and the care and the affection that you have in, I am going to be miserable Trouble. and I am going to be lonely and I am not necessarily going to know why. I'll right. blame you, but I won't understand that the real problem isn't you. The real problem is that I won't let you in. Right, right. I the real, right? That's right. The Whether problem. you go from the spectrum of, you know, a mild issue to all the, to a full-blown, like horrible situation that the person was raised in. Yeah. At the end of the day, and I don't mean to sound callous, but at the end of the day, you have to make that choice of what's best for me. Right. Because right. is it best for me? I know terrible things happened or maybe mild things happened, but is it best for me today to push people away? Yeah. Or, right. In? Right. Right. Oh, again, push them away is the overt and that's the strong and and that it, let's say it's on a continuum from push them away to simply quietly not even realize that we're not letting them give because the thing that, that this dynamic this compulsive caretaking we call it a relationship the thing that it really protects us from are the awareness of the anxieties that go along with intimacy empathy vulnerability and emotional investment so if you're you know, if you're using this to suppress your anxiety about those things, then you're not able to be intimate. Then you're not able to have empathy. Then you're not able to be vulnerable and you are not able to build emotional investments in a relationship. Again, those four ingredients are essential to feeling connected with each other. Like I'm invested, Sandra, like I, the fact that we're here together, like, I mean, I am invested in our relationship over the four or five times yeah. that we've been <laughs> together, right? I'm invested. Because I can drop my guard and take in what you have to offer. And I feel the same is true for you. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it's funny, you know, when you talk about that, like with, with my cancer treatments last year, you know, I read your books and, you know, I was kind of noodling around, you know, because you have a lot of time when you're getting these treatments done. Mm -hmm. And then I was going like, oh my gosh, you know, all these people were writing nice things on social media and, you know, they, they're like, oh my God, like, what if you die? So, you know, like you're kind of in this weird place when you're having cancer treatments as a single mom, caring for my dad, my friends are coming over and they're like, well, let us do these things for you. And it was so uncomfortable for me. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm one of those people, like, you know, because it was such <laughs> an overwhelm coming in. It was almost too much for me yeah. to handle, but I will yeah. tell you, like, I got so much out of it because people would say, oh, well, you know, I haven't talked to you in 15 years, but you know, you did this for me and you were so kind to me. I just want you to have the best possible outcome for your treatment. I got a bunch of letters like that. And the thing was, I didn't even remember who they were and I didn't remember <laughs> helping them, but I knew I did. And then I'm like, oh my God, am I a compulsive, you know, over helper, over giver? Like, you know, cause you're sitting there yeah. in a bed for like six hours, you know, with nothing yeah. but, you know, Google searches to find out what's wrong with you. Um, right, right, right. But the funny thing was, is I realized because I was sitting and present, 
most of the time when we need help, um, we're rushing around, like somebody to pick up our kids, somebody whatever. And there were times when I was super sick after treatment. And not only did my kids or my friends, they had to help me to the bathroom. They had to, you know, one of them helped wash my hair. And, you know, the other one, like my son would go get me a bucket to throw up in. And, you know, these are all awful things. But I was present and I could see how much love they had and how much like there's no joy in cleaning up puke but there is the joy of helping because most of the time we're so busy and when we need Mm. help we're not focusing on the help we're given but when you're sick when you're in bed when you're a mom when you're you know a, a daughter caregiver and your friends come over like my friends were they were so happy to come over and feed my dad Like they would call me after and say, you know, I have my dad's been dead for 10 years for like just 10 minutes taking care of your dad. I felt like my dad was there like that stuff's mind blowing because we're usually going too fast to recognize what happens when somebody says, hey, you know, I need your help. Could you do this? We don't stop to go and see that little flash of like joy. That little flash of meaning, that little flash. And because I had all the time in the world, you know, sitting in bed, there was time for us to have conversations like, you know, I was so happy to take care of your dad. It really did something for me. I got to feel like I had something valuable to offer you, right? Yes. That's, That's the message you sent is you have value to me whether you're my child, whether you're ter- taking over the care of my dad, it was all those wonderful, whole, I mean, obviously a horrible circumstance right. that, that you didn't go crazy, it sounds like, in our definition, because you let people love you. Right. And oh. there were times, I'll be honest, it was uncomfortable. Oh, it was a little yeah. bit much, yeah. you know, and it was, it was kind of weird when people came out of the woodwork that I hadn't thought about in 15, 20 years. That's why, like, at one point I looked at my social media feed and I'm like, oh, shit, maybe I am dying. Like, oh, you know? oh. <laughs> because, oh wow. What you an know? example, though. What an example of what we're talking about. Because, again, so extreme, that death, fear of death, that Again, and even there, like, I'm like, I'm, well, I'm still going to be embarrassed. Like, hey, I might be really, really not well, but I'm still like I, like, I want you to see that. Come on. And that's the risk you took. That's the vulnerability, right? The vulnerability of saying I'm not well. But if you hadn't been able to transmit that, if you've been willing to transmit that, what? Suffering there in isolation. Well, and I will tell you, there was some real suffering with going through cancer treatments during a pandemic. Oh, God. Because first of all, like like the upside was like people are like, okay, well, you have stage three C cancer, but you don't have COVID. So, you know, there was like kind of that like kind of weird mentality thing. But the other thing was you had to be in isolation because normal chemotherapy, you can bring your friends in, you can have somebody sit with you, that yeah. you know, you can do all this stuff. Well, because of COVID, we were all like in our little isolation areas for hours and hours at a time. And all I had was my phone. Mm-hmm. And after the first treatment, like I got in the car with my son who's 17 and had to drive me. And I I really was not well, not, not from the chemicals, like mentally going, okay, this is really tough for me. Like, I don't know what to do and all this stuff. And so just by whatever reason, I took a picture of myself and I said, number one of 26 is done. And I put it up on social media and 
I lived for those posts during my treatments. Like I would be there sometimes three, four, five hours. And I'd I'd look at my social media feed and I'd see Stacey Tucker posting Sandra Strong or Kristen Zensky or my, you know, childhood, you know, girlfriend from elementary school going, you got this girly. Like that's where I think, you know, social Mm -hmm. media, you know, can be really used. And I did get a couple people who said to me, well, you know, she's just milking it for attention or you're just trying to get all this attention. And I said, absolutely. Oh yeah, attention. Attention is the first form of love. Yes. Attention, please bring it on. Like, bring I'll it on. It. Like, yeah. I need this. I'm sitting in a hospital room all <laughs> right. by myself. And, you yeah. know, when she made this comment at a party, everybody laughed because I'm like, you betcha. Like, yeah, right. I will take every bit <laughs> of attention. Yeah, like, Give me an avalanche. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? But the other weird thing that happened during this time, and this is why it was very relevant with your book about, you know, kind of that balance and that, you know, cycling of of allowing people to come in is I can't tell you how many people were suffering from the same type of situation, sometimes worse cancer, sometimes better, sometimes terminal. And they're like, I would never post it. I'm glad you do. And I'm glad you're getting all the support, but I could never do that. I'm a private person. I'm a this. And I would say, well, like, you know, what do you do during the treatments? I'm like, you know, this, this actually kind of makes my treatments uplifting. Uh, You know, not that I was looking forward to them, but that part of it was really nice. And they're like, well, I just, I just don't. And I just, and I could feel them pushing that thing back where I said, I'm giving you permission to post this so that mm -hmm. we can all love you. We can all support you. We can cheer you on and we can help (sighs) you do this. I have a friend actually who's terminal and she's posting and everybody is showering her with love and we want to. Yeah. It's really interesting, right? Because 12-step philosophy has this quote that I love. It's, it, 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 calls, it calls this it's this kind of fierce independence. It calls it the bone-crushing juggernaut of self-sufficiency. Mm. You know, it's like how many of us are crushed by that juggernaut? Because we don't know, like, oh, I'm embarrassed, and oh, it's humiliating, and oh, it's attention-seeking, and all that kind of stuff, only to realize I'm not letting my crazy work for me. Because crazy being, I'm isolated, and I'm embarrassed and I'm humiliated and I don't want anybody to see me in this state. But if I don't, I am going to isolate myself. I am going to not allow the people in my life to find the value that I experience from receiving what you have to offer. Like you just naturally were able to let those people love you. And, and all these people on social media, I mean, you expanded it, right? You, you like, it went exponential for you. It did, like, you know, yeah. and it, and I kind of looked forward to it. And, you know, in the few little criticisms I got, even from one family member was like, mm. well, I just can't believe, you know, you, you put yourself up there in the hospital and this. And I said, yeah, because I needed support. Yeah. You know, and not that there's any perfect or right way to do it, but I was able to deepen and strengthen friendships by allowing people to see me without hair and makeup done, without mm. looking, you know, perky and positive. And, you know, with with the proliferation of digital media, you know, we've all become so self-conscious about our likeness. 
And, you know, it's like you look at like we're looking at each other on the screen right now. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, like I probably should have like done something to my hair, but whatever. I'm like, you're, you're, you're talking to me, not my hair. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, a lot of us have become so self-conscious. But the funny thing is, is if you met me in person for 20 years or you saw me digitally for 20 years, you're just seeing my face. You're not yeah. seeing my wrinkles. Yeah. You're not seeing my eyebrows that fell out. You're not <laughs> seeing all these things like like it's a really weird thing of going we're so afraid of being seen and being vulnerable but if you just show up across from someone whether it's on a screen or in a cafe you're being seen that's right and that's why again this psychological defense system that we're talking about it is co-created right there are two people that invest in this distance because it's so scary to let it to let ourselves be seen at our you could say worse but i mean that's just how we feel about ourselves right, right? it's not so much worse it's like raw right it's not like i'm good or bad or I'm, I'm good bad and everything in between I, right. I think of it as the intimacy of everyday life right like i was in the bathtub on monday morning because i like just soaking you know mm-hmm. i got a busy day i'm soaking in the bathtub and i've got this cat right the cat's name is malcolm binder um or maruchan <laughs> And this cat, you know, and I are just buddies, right? New cat. We got him in um, October. And uh, the cat's very curious about um, the bath, the water, the faucet. The cat for months has been climbing on the, you know, right on the ledge or whatever. This day, the cat decided to jump at the nozzle. And guess what? It <laughs> Landed on my thigh. I mean, it was like I got sliced by a razor blade, this poor cat. And I'm like, wow, screaming cat out of the bathroom, screaming dad out of the bathroom, like (laughs) both the cat and I looking completely maniacal. And that is the intimacy of everyday life because the three other people on planet earth who matter most to me, what they think of me, you know, whether I'm husband, whether I'm dad, whether I'm shrink, whether I'm breadwinner, whether I'm author, whether I'm whatever, what I was in that moment, total maniac (laughs) right right? that's the intimacy of everyday life those people that we most want to see us bright and shiny are ultimately going to see us just out of our minds right (laughs) so you know i mean whether it's you know illness whether it's some catastrophe whether it's because somebody stepped on my toe accidentally and i had a terrible reaction you know all of these things in the long run are going to be incorporated in our new closest relationships. Sure. Those are the challenges, right? Can will you still love me if you see me running naked through my apartment with a bloody thigh because my buddy cat just wounded me? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it scarred me. <laughs> it's almost like an illusion that that you know the the pushback or or you know even many people think they buy into this illusion that somehow who you are this one moment in time is who you are at every moment in time. Right, 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 right. Like your, your headshot, right? You got this beautiful headshot, right? Like, that's not me. No, no, that was makeup. And, you know, and then my kid took that picture. I went, huh? And he took the picture. It's like, you know, (laughs) you know, but I do think, you know, I think, you know, there's a thing with the military and you're ex-military, so you know this, where battles are won and lost in the mind. 
Yeah. You know, like yeah. before we even go out the door, we decide not to go to the gym before we, you know, yeah. like Oprah, I was reading something that Oprah wrote that like Don Johnson in the eighties invited her to some party. And he was like all the rage because of Miami vice. And yeah, she yeah, yeah. didn't go because she felt she was too big. It's yeah. like, you know, Don Johnson didn't invite Oprah to the party because she was a size 16, 18, 10 or 12, whatever she yeah. was like, yeah. you know, this is yeah. where these like battles are won and lost in the mind. And, yeah. you know, this whole cancer thing, I've been kind of mining it for information because it was so rich with things. And mm. when a couple things people asked me were so like, huh? <laughs> One of them was, aren't you embarrassed for people? to know you're sick. Huh. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I didn't know that being sick was something to be embarrassed about. Thank you for telling me I should be, yeah, yeah. you know, but things yeah. like that. Or another one was, well, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to know I'm sick because, you know, if I died, that would be, and I'm like, I just stopped her right there. And I'm like, if you're dead, you're not going to be, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm probably not going to worry about it. By the way, how are you? You yeah, look exactly. Great. Oh, you know, right? You know, but it just goes to show like kind of right. what faulty thinking we have if we never articulate it to another rational human being. And this is where yeah. when I was thinking about your isolation thing, mm. you know, like when I was isolated forcefully because of COVID, because of my yeah. cancer treatments, and I started having all sorts of crazy thoughts. You know, you're mm. sitting there watching that bag drip and I'm like, what's in there? What kind of poison is in they dripping in my body? Like, you know, you could go way down the dark path or yeah. you, you know, and that's where that does isolation beget like more crazy because you know yeah, yeah, and using yeah. your term about that's that. right that's right it feeds on itself right and you even see i wonder if even some of the reactions that you had from people like that like whoa this must be so embarrassing see what i'm doing in that moment is i'm not actually caring for you i'm projecting myself into your situation going, see when we do that we can't right when we do that we can't do that most dangerous emotional thing because i think the most dangerous emotional thing that human beings do with each other is empathize with each other i mean again it's dangerous it is i mean I forget the air quotes it's literally because again it's me caring for you in a way that puts me in touch with my own feelings it puts me in touch with my own experience if you're in a terrible physical condition and i'm empathizing with you i am feeling what it has been like for me to be in terrible physical conditions right i am empathizing with you so i'm joining you not because your emotions jumped into me but because i went to that scary place in myself to be with you so you can imagine you know this is why people protect themselves from it i mean and, and so i have all kinds of compassion for them protecting themselves but i'm like look it is dangerous yeah it is scary yeah it is painful but if you don't do it guess what you are alone right. you are alone you have banished yourself you have sentenced yourself to a life of loneliness because the only way to reach each other really emotionally is through these four pillars that we talk about empathy intimacy vulnerability and emotional investment if i don't have those things going hey i might be teflon I might be, you know, compulsively caretaking, but I'm not connected. Right. Yeah. Right. And we can all go there, right? We right. all can go there, right? We all can go there because we don't want to tell, we don't want to tell the people that matter most to us that we need help. Right. 
Well, and it's a choice. Like yeah. that was the other thing that I really got loud and clear, you know, and the analogy of what you were saying with, you know, you need these kind of, you know, the four pillars. Yeah. Well, like for me to get better and to have a happy, healthy life, like, yes, I had to do, you know, the things that, you know, the surgery, the chemotherapy, the immun mm. immunotherapy, like whatever the things I had to do, there were yeah. four of them. And I could do these four things and have like a 78% chance, according to statistics, to be alive in five years. I'll take yeah. those odds. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? So if I do yeah. these yeah. four things and it's and it's akin to your, if you do, if you attend to these four things, you know, you could have a 78% chance of like being like super happy and in a relationship. Right. Right. Or sane, right? We call it sane. Sane being we can be connected with a balance of giving and taking in our relationship. Right. Yeah. And all four yeah. of these things, you know, the surgeries weren't easy. The treatments mm. weren't easy. The tests weren't easy. I had this wicked freak out that I have to tell you about in the MRI tube, which is really mm. funny. And, right. you know, but so these four choices I had to make for an outcome and you're, you're giving the same four choices in your book. Yeah. Going, they're not yeah. going to be easy. You're not no. going to like them. It's easier no. just to push back or overgive. Right. You know, these are your habits. These are the things yep. that's the easy route, but if you do these four things, like there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Right. You will be connected to yourself and to other people, right? You will be, because right. this is our third book. And this one, in the first um, two, we were like all about relationships, and couples, and romance. In this one, we're all about your relationship with yourself. Yes. All, right. That's what we're really working on here now. Finally going like, okay, here I am. I better, you know, start receiving other things from parts of myself that have been cut off. We use the word dissociation because that's what happens when we're traumatized, right? We just cut off parts of ourselves, part yep. of our self-experience. But we need those parts. Right, you know? <laughs> like, right, right. You, <laughs> to right. Function. you can't, you know, chop it off and, yeah. you yeah. know. But it's, you know, I want to just say something about the, you know, like the disassociation, the chopping off. And this is why you go to a shrink to work out, you know, whatever you need to work out because your thoughts lie to you and yeah. they lie to you all the time. And I just want to share with you really quickly. My first MRI, I had never been in an MRI tube and I had to have a head to toe scan. So they kind of wrap you up like a mummy. They put little shades on you. You got things in your ears. They shove you in a tube where you can kind of feel the walls like on your shoulders because, you know, it's a really tiny little tube and uh -huh. they bolt you down. They bolted my head down and they wrapped me and strapped me to this board in preparation for putting me in there. And the lady I can hear her in the little earphone and I, I hear her say, Miss Beck, Miss Beck, your heart rate's really high. Miss Beck, can you breathe? Miss Beck, are you breathing? And I'm like. I, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. So she comes back in the little room. She flips the little eye cups off my eyes. I wasn't even in the tube. Huh. I was oh. still laying on the table. They hadn't, like, you know, the thing hadn't gone, you know, to drive me in there. Yeah, 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 I yeah. had gotten myself into such a state and it was the strap that brushed my arm. Yeah, and all I yeah. could think of is it's a coffin. This is too tight. I'm going to suffocate. Uh, what if there's an earthquake in Southern California and the building collapses and I'm stuck in this tube for all eternity? Like this was all the crazy going on in my head or all the, you know, the insanity going on in my head. And when and she took those cups off and she was looking at me. She goes, honey, you're not even in the tube yet. <laughs> that's so great. Because again, that's the model, right? Somebody comes in, intervenes, shows you the light. And you're like, oh, I'm not alone here. Yes. I'm not alone. There is somebody outside this experience who's actually caring for me. 
Yes. And knows the deal. And it's able, honey, you know, like. Well, and it oh. just can show you how, you know, like I'm not claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, gone in caves in Utah and California. I've gone way down deep where you have to shimmy along. You have to be measured before you can go yeah. through the cave to see all this crystal stuff. I don't have a problem with that. But man, that day I had a problem with it. <sighs> and it really showed me. If we don't have someone to share our thoughts with or to correct our thinking, look at how far off base I got, Dr. Mark. And, you know, I'm a radio host. I have a master's degree. I'm a mother. I've raised three kids. I'm a veteran caregiver for 12 years. You would think I could get it. But that just beauty, Right. But the beauty of that is at that moment, some part of you was able to transmit a message that I need help, no matter what our status, right? No matter what, we're all going to run into that moment, right? We're all going to run into that moment. And hopefully, like you, we'll be able to respond to it. Hopefully, we'll take that when they flip that, you know, they flip so we can see again. We're like, yes, yes, yes. I just woke up from a bad dream. Right. Right. But it just shows how we are all vulnerable. Yeah. Like there's not anybody on the planet that is bulletproof. There's Mm -hmm. not anybody on the planet that can exist comfortably, happily in a vacuum or in isolation. And I think one of the things that is so important about your book is the permission to go, you know what? I'm doing this I don't like to say wrong because I don't necessarily think there's a right or wrong, but I'm doing something that's not getting me the outcome I want. That's right. That, that That's that's a really wonderful play, way of putting it because we too were certainly not saying you're wrong. In fact, the development of this way of interacting, what we call in a, a relationship, it's, it looks, I mean, thank goodness the mind protects us for long enough that we can get the help, right? There are some situations that are so treacherous and so traumatizing for a child that you need this defense system to get to a place where you can have the resources, right? You needed to be in the head state that you were in long enough for that woman to finally come and go like, it's okay. Right. <laughs> and that's what we ultimately say to each other, right? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Now you can come out. You can come out of that really intense, hardcore psychological defense system and start anew. We can start this thing all over again. You and I, we can start building a new way of relating to each other, which is, again, the world, right? Because the world is basically psychologically, the world is represented by people. Right, right. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, and this was one thing that I I learned, too, that I thought was really like, a, but it was good for me when the oncologist told me, he's like, you know, he goes, you're going to want to make your will. Mm you know, I'm not old. I'm not 80 years old. You know, I'm not 40, but I'm not 50 either. Like, you know, you kind of go like, what? And he's like, you know, there could be side effects, you know, this, you know, there could be, you could be in the 20%, you could be in all this stuff. And I, I came home to my house and I'm like, I was looking at like, you know, I have a big house and it's a pain in the ass to clean. And I'm like, how many times did I spend frustrated because the floors weren't clean or the oven wasn't clean or the laundry wasn't put away? And I'm like, wow, was I an idiot? Like, not that I was judging myself like that, but going, there's so many more important things in the world. And I think that's one of the things that one of these difficult diagnoses is, or if you came from trauma, like you already got that message early on. Yeah. And so what did you do to cope? 
Yeah. And, and again, to have deep respect for those coping mechanisms, yes. rather than to judge, rather than criticize, especially yourself and say, hey, I needed this long enough to get to the point where I could actually start to develop new resources yep. for being in the world. Right. Right. And I like to like I liken it to I had to learn the medical language. Like, mm-hmm. you know how there's a languaging for every industry? There's like shrink speak, there's real estate yeah, yeah. speak, you yeah. know, there's education speak. Well, mm-hmm. there's medical speak too. So I went home and I started looking up these terms that he was using. And I'm like, huh, okay, I gotta learn a different language now. Yeah. And that's okay. It didn't mean that I was somehow deficient in the old language, but, you know, and it's just like the old tools that maybe got me to 15 or to 25. Those tools are not working anymore. No different than a pair of ice skates you bought at 10 years old. Why would you expect those ice skates to be working at 40 years old? Like the tools that we used. Mm, And that's that's where like, I want to demystify, destigmatize all this stuff because you're really just talking about a better set of tools. Yeah, right, right. And tools that actually allow us to reach each other, right? That's really what Danny and Grant and I've been researching for, I guess we're coming on our 12th year. So, I mean, we yeah. really, we're into it. You know, we're really, really into it. We use these tools in our relationships with each other. I mean, we've, we've certainly run into some, you know, real kind of intimacies of everyday life that almost knocked us out. We also believe that every single time there's a rupture, it's an opportunity for repair. And every time we join together as a couple, as a trio, as a company, as a family, every single time we take a rupture as an opportunity for repair, when we repair together, we come back stronger. Absolutely. We come back more connected. We come back more optimistic, more hopeful, more loving, more caring, more kind. We believe that. Well, and that's a that's a very solid business principle because you know they teach you in business school that a a, a mess up with a client is the opportunity to build a client for life. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's so exactly why right. would right? Why would this be any different? Like I yeah. I look at these mm-hmm. patterns of you know whether they're business or military or you know psychological or spiritual. You know, you you just go the universe has patterns. And if we can apply those patterns to us, we don't have to feel like there's something so tragically wrong with us, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we can't be fixed. Yeah, that's right. That's you know? such a, what a great message, right? What a great, like, if you live in a world where every mess up, every rupture allows for, like, what you just said, like, wonderfully, like, a lifetime relationship, right? Right. We and can a lifetime do- relationship with myself, right? Isn't that what, yep. because that's the point of this, the third book is, like, Hey man, we wiped out, we wiped out, we wiped out relationship after relationship after relationship. And you know what? We didn't take that as an opportunity because we didn't see the opportunity for that to become a way of rebuilding. But you know what? We can start over anytime, anytime. Right? That's I mean, the thing. It's not baseball. It's not three strikes, you're out. Like, no, you know, no. and I think that's where we get into those like battles of the mind going, what set of rules? Did we write for ourselves or did our families write for us Yeah. that, you know, and it's funny because for so many years, uh, Dr. Mark, I always felt the crazy one. I was the oddball. Like I have a sister who's a missile defense program. I have a brother who's, a you know, in tech engineering. And then I've got a NASA rocket scientist for a brother, another sister who's a nurse. Like they all fit into these nice little neat things. And, you know, I never fit into those neat boxes. So I never had the expectation of thinking I could ever be like anybody else, which you would think sounds very isolating, but it's very freeing because it's like, you know what? 
if I can't be you, Dr. Mark, and I can't be my sister or my brother or my cousins or my, you know, cousins, a doctor, like if I can't be any of those people, oh, well, I guess I'll just have to be myself. Yeah, right, right. Fluid and open and accessible and willing and all these things that we talk about, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, giving people one of the things that I think that your book gives people is the permission to be where they are. Mm. And to get a do-over. Right. That's right. And, you know, look, I, the funniest thing, I'm through the pandemic, I've been seeing this couple who've been married for 62 years. Wow. And I'm telling you, it's, I mean, again, it's hard work. It's hard, hard work. So I don't want to go like, oh, isn't it great? It's, it's not great because, I mean, it's tough. It's couples therapy in the sure. pandemic, right? We're all over each other. We're stuffed in these places, especially in New York City. We have these apartments that we have to live in together. Oh, but, but, like, to see these people this many years into a relationship still valuing the relationship so much that they're willing to start over every day, it's, it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. I, I love having the example. Yeah, and it's super inspirational. Yeah, it really is. To go, really you're is. still willing to work, you know? Because yeah. do you think the pandemic is going to cause, like, record number of divorces? I don't know, you know what I mean? Because I, I think the jury is still out. I think that it, it, both. I mean, I think the people who rupture and repair are going to be the people, like you said in the business example, that are going to be, like, lifetime partners because we got through this trauma and we used rupture and repair. And I think it's less about, like, epidemic of divorce. It may be. But I think it's more like epidemic of all of us looking around and being more honest with ourselves about the kinds of relationships we're in yep. and how valuable we will allow them to be. So it's, I don't think it's so much like people are going to get divorced who weren't going to get divorced anyways. I just think that we might have the information sooner, you know. You know, so instead of waiting 30 years or 20 years or 15 until the kids are gone, whatever, I think we'll look at each other and go, you know what? We didn't handle this very well. You know, we wiped out. We didn't use this as an opportunity to get close. Right. Or we did. Or we did. Or we did. Like, right. I'm I've a little seen... biased, right? Because I'm a couple shrink and people are reading my books and calling me or whatever. And so I see a lot of I, I, I see a lot of people who are in really difficult circumstances who are working really, really hard to, to relearn how to be in relationship with themselves and each other. So I'm, I'm really optimistic, you know? Well, I think, you know, that's good. I mean, I'm optimistic too, because I look at how many people are making career changes mm -hmm. and I'm looking at, mm -hmm. you know, and that's to kind of tail back to the idea that I don't, I never fit into any of my family mold. So, you know, if there's no other mold to fit into, like why try? But mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people, I think what COVID has done, it's opened their eyes to going, why did I marry this person? Why did I choose this career? When mm -hmm. you slow down and stop everything, you can go like, for me, I'm like, oh my God, this is why I chose this career. Like, I love this. Like, I, you know, <laughs> this yeah. is so great. But I also didn't have any pressure to conform to a certain set of ideals. I didn't have, you know, when I got divorced, my parents were like, it's about time, you know, mm, right, <laughs> you, know right. you know, they could see more than I could see. So, sure. But if you didn't and you marched to these drums that you thought would give you a certain outcome and that outcome didn't happen, like that's where I see a lot of the raging. It's yeah. like I was supposed to go to school and I wanted to do this, but I did this. Now we're in a pandemic and now I don't have this. And I think a yeah. lot of people are identifying they bought in or drank the Kool-Aid of what they should do. 
versus yeah. what was written on their heart or what they were designed sure. to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that yeah. COVID just, man, it just shot that through the roof. That's how I explain all the career changes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because again, this book is really about exactly what you're saying, listening to our heart, finding a way to listen to ourselves, to listen to that deeper truth that's underneath the way in which we've overprotected ourselves from allowing ourselves to be connected to each other. So, yeah, I mean, I think once we start listening to what our heart is saying, because that's the solution, making your crazy work for you. The crazy is another way of saying, like, this is what your heart says when it's traumatized. This is what your heart's saying when it's suppressed, repressed, dissociated, right? If you take away all those blocks, then your crazy is really just your deeper self. It's your heart saying, here's what I want. Right. And and be able to be heard. And yeah. more importantly, being able to ask for what you want. That's right. And because need. And need. I'm, I'm okay. I'm a big, yeah. I'm a, I, I'm, you know, a woman came back to therapy some years ago after being in couple therapy with her husband. It was a, a rough relationship that really was, they were, they were so incompatible and they were trying to make it work and it wasn't going to work and it didn't. And sometimes couple therapy is about helping people, you know, uh, kindly and care and, and with care, you know, separate. So this was one of those situations. And so about four years later, the woman was lonely and she came back to, to see me and she said, Mark, um, I'm thinking about getting back together with my ex-husband. And I said, oh, you know, and she said, he has six out of 10 of the things that I need. And I said, that's a D. <laughs> right. right, that's a D. You know, that's a D. We, if if it's need, we need ten out of ten. I'm talking need, right? I'm not talking frivolous. I'm talking like one thing I need as a human being. I need oxygen. If I don't have oxygen, I'm dead. So when I think about needs, I think like let's be honest with ourselves about what we need in relationship. And then again, that's great divorce prevention to like right. be honest with myself. I need this. I need someone who's willing to be. To, to engage empathy, intimacy, vulnerability, and emotional investment. Let's just start out with those four things. And if, I, if, if I'm honest with myself, and if that person's honest with me, then we can, we can be together. Right. Yeah. Right. But I do think. And she did not get back. She did not get back together with this guy. Oh, good. Thank goodness. Right. Because <laughs> you would just end up like, you know, it's like a, like a, a repeat. You just end up yeah. where you are. If those, That's right. especially your basic needs, you know, I did a show Mark about dating and, you know, this was shortly after my divorce and my mom died. And I, I mm. told the lady on the, on the air, you could listen to it. I'm like, well, there's two sinks in my bathroom. And she goes, yes. She goes, how do you deal with that? How does that make you feel? And I'm like, great. I'm like, one is the makeup sink. The other one's the hair sink. Like, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I, I don't really. And, and she said, well so what about the his and hers closet i said oh no new york closet california closet like yeah. and she said i don't think you're ready right now <laughs> to think about and i really couldn't articulate like if you asked me today like what do you need in a in a spouse a partner a boyfriend i would say i want somebody who's kind to me mm. i want somebody who will hold my hand or snuggle we can watch whatever on tv i really don't care but i want that closeness yeah yeah, but that's why a good start. I, that's a great start. Yeah, why would <laughs> I date someone who is all about work and all about money yeah. and never wants to hug or gives you that weird, like, you know, people give that, like, like boy-to-boy -boy hug. Yeah, the bro, the bro, the bro, the the bro, bro hug. Thing, the pat on the back, and yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, don't want that, <laughs> oh, no. Thanks. 
Yeah. I don't even want that from my bros, you know? I don't right. want that from Grant and Danny. I want a big old hug and snuggle. Right, I want a bear yeah. hug and a snuggle yeah. and, you know, noogies <laughs> like my brothers used to give me, you know? But the yeah. funny thing is, is I think, I don't know why, and, you know, the, we've got to wrap it up because we're almost out of time, but uh-huh. why are people so ashamed to say what they want because or what they need? Where did, <sighs> where did we get that? Because again, like we said, you know, if you've, if you've been, if, if, you know, the, 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 the wonderful Yuval Harari said, basically, there are two ways to be happy. One, you're lucky. You just got neurochemicals that are transmitting the right you know, formula, right? The other is when expectations match outcomes. And so when, when we have our expectations dashed and torn to pieces in the boot camp of early life, you know, we come out with, I use the word a little facetiously, trust, trusting that the old environment will continue to repeat. And so what we do is we recreate it over and over again. Freud called it the repetition compulsion. So that's really what it's about. It's about repeating this pattern, not realizing that if we just put our weapons down, if we just put our weapons down, then we would be able to access the joy. We would be able to allow ourselves, you know, really in the terminology of the day, to care for and be cared for. And be cared for. And would it be safe to say that those who are having a hard time being cared for, you could just acknowledge that, you know what, anytime I asked for things, those things weren't given to me, but that doesn't have to be my truth today. That's right. And, you know, I I find it, you know, sometimes people think it as an invitation to self-criticism, but I ask people to do two things, to, to follow two rules when they're trying to look at conflict between themselves and others. Here's rule number one. Keep the focus on yourself. Okay. And here's rule number two. Refer to rule number one because it's <laughs> that. <laughs> because, you know, I only I and my contributions, it's only my contributions and relations that I have any control over. Right. I can hope to the, you know, to, to high heaven that you're going to contribute good stuff, but only my contributions. And then if we're both willing to contribute and take in what the other one has to offer and we're keeping the focus on ourselves, we'll be able to resolve any conflict. Anything. Anything, yeah. anything, anything. All right. So where can people right. get your book? Uh, yeah, Amazon, uh, Central Recovery Press is my publisher. Um, if you want to talk to me, you can Google Mark B. Borg Jr. I'm happy to respond. Um, I have two blogs on psychology today. One's called Irrelationship. The other is Relationship Sanity. And, you know, I, <laughs> and I'm happy, happy to respond if anybody has any questions. Love that. Love that. You guys get a copy, get a copy of all three books, but I'm going to say, I think you should read this one first Mm. because when you can deal with yourself and you know yourself and you can work yourself, then work on the relationship. Cause I think it's really hard to, to do it the other way. Like if I had a perfect world, I would have, I would have had you not like, it can't be changed, but this one should have been written first because then (laughs) I need to get my shit together before I can involve another variable or another person. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, start with this one, you guys. You'll be glad you did. We'll be back again next week with another great episode. Cowabunga. (laughs) We're glad you joined us for Powered Up Talk Radio. Each week, we share innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be. See you next time on Powered Up Talk Radio.